So 2 Timothy chapter 3. Who has not been here for any part of the study? This is your first time in 2 Timothy with us. Okay. That's, no, no, this is cool. It's cool. Jeez. It's not like school. You're not like marked down or anything like that. Cool. I'll do a quick recap. We'll get going. Let me pray real fast. Um, that's always going to set the tone. So um, pray with me. Jesus, um, it's a tough chapter that you have for us. And so um, I just pray that we would receive it. Uh, it's a heavy chapter, but, but I pray that it actually brings relief and that it would be lifted from us. Maybe some, some ideas that we come to the table with, maybe some um, just issues that our, our culture faces in general would, would rise to the surface, but that we'd see that, um, that there's relief in you. And so I just pray for that. Pray for um, just kind of a, a deep breath as we, as we go through a somewhat heavy chapter. And, um, but, but I pray that we stay excited as well, that we stay excited to learn from you. Um, you know, people go around all, all the time saying, I want to know God's will for my life. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. Well, this is a chapter where you very clearly um, talk about some things that um, are contrary to you and things that we should push aside. And so I just pray that you'd encourage us, excite us. Jesus, we, uh, we love you. I pray that we... Um, every day you become a little more precious to us, that we get a little bit more excited about seeing you again, um, that, that you're made more and more real to us, that we can, we can see you on your throne a little bit clearer every day. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, you got to go to work. Um, my words are just words if you don't interpret them and embed them in the hearts of the people. And so, by your spirit, uh, by your grace, God, enable me to teach enable those that are here to learn, to receive from you. Anything that I say, may it be discarded. Everything that comes from you may be embedded in our hearts. Jesus, we love you. We praise you to your glory alone. Amen. So we're in 2 Timothy, the last letter that the apostle Paul wrote before he got his head lopped off. He's in a Roman prison, about to be martyred for his faith, about to be martyred for his faith. If you don't know much about Paul, I'll summarize it like this. He was an enemy of Christianity before he met Jesus. Some of you might know the time tale. So like he, never, he, he was born after Jesus ascended. Jesus showed up to Paul. At the time, his name was Saul. And Paul, Saul, I'm going to continue to get those wrong. I'm just going to call him Paul. Saul, at the time, was an enemy of Christianity. He oversaw the stoning of Stephen. He very likely was there for many stonings of Christians. They laid their garments at his feet, would pick up boulders and run and chuck them at martyrs for the faith. And Paul stood there as a Pharisee, as a Jew, as a high religious leader, a guy that knew by memory books of the Bible that we haven't even read through. And we refuse to. We don't know the first, I said this before, we don't know the first 10 words of the book of Numbers. No one has those even memorized, let alone the first three words. Some of us didn't even know there was a book of numbers in the Bible. Paul had it memorized, very likely as a Pharisee. High-ranking, incredibly smart, multiple degrees, books to the top of his office. And he was an absolute, dedicated enemy of the church. And on one trip, as he went and received permission to grab women and children and put them in jail, anyone that was one of these crazy Christians... He got permission that as he went on this trip, he could grab men, women, children, and put them in jail if they were part of the way, which was kind of a derogatory way of saying, oh, the way, because Jesus said he's the way. And he was grabbing women and children and putting them in prison for professing the faith in Christ. And so Jesus himself cracks open heaven and says, hey, it's all, knock it off. 
and he met Jesus and everything changed. And I've said it every week, I'll say it again. For some of you, you have perhaps a recent or later in life, you had a recent and radical experience with Jesus and it changed everything, praise God. Praise God, if you had a radical experience, you know the minute you were saved, right? You've heard those testimonies. It was 12.06 on Tuesday. Just got out of lunch, right? I was just driving on the freeway. I was just coming from there. I was just going there. And something happened. Maybe it was during a sermon by Preached Grace. Maybe it was through a friend, through Ministry Grace. Any one of these, you remember, you had a radical encounter with Jesus and everything changed. You don't have to raise your hand, but some of you identify with that. You know that moment. I don't identify with that, to be honest. And he's writing to a guy that likely did not, in fact, we're going to see evidence that this guy had been a Christian his whole life, Timothy. Young guy. He knew the scriptures from the time he was a kid. This was my experience. I don't have that radical moment. I've always grown up loving Jesus. I just, I just have. Grew up in a Christian family. Praise God. I have a boring testimony. Praise God. Some of you are ashamed of your boring testimony. I didn't do drugs. I didn't run away. I wasn't an alcoholic at 12. I don't have the typical preacher testimony that you see a lot. And we tend to glorify a lot. Like, man, that guy really just, I got a boring testimony. And I praise Jesus for it. Some of you have a boring testimony. You should be excited about that. People that had the radical testimony might want to swap with you, to be honest. There's a lot of pain that goes involved in some of that rebellion early on. But he's writing to Timothy, he's this young guy, so Paul's got this radical transformation, and he's writing to Timothy, who's by all accounts just had a lifelong faith in Jesus. And he's likely, as we see Paul continue to exhort him in this letter and in others, to, to be strong, to be loyal in the faith, likely because T Timothy's actually struggling with, with kind of you know, being passive in his faith, he's kind of maybe on his heels a little bit. He's not as aggressive, you know, he didn't have Jesus show up from heaven and smack him around. Right? Just sort of, ah, it's been a family thing. I've always gone to church. I've just always loved the Lord. I've just, I'm, you know, just doing my work. And he's into this ministrator. I don't, I, some people think he's a pastor of this church. I tend to side with the bucket that says he wasn't. He was more of like a deacon or a church administrator. Doesn't matter either way. Okay? We can ask him when we get to heaven. Okay? But Timothy had this lifelong faith. And so he's writing to Timothy. He's exhorting him. He's encouraging him. Paul, this man of a radical testimony, is writing a guy with probably a very boring testimony. From prison, he's telling him to get excited. And, and we saw in the first chapter that he exhorted Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And he was pushing Timothy, and he was challenging him to be unashamed of the gospel, and in that first chapter, I mean, I think that strikes home with a lot of us. We tend to get passive in our faith. Maybe because it's not new. It's nothing recent. So maybe it's not as exciting. We've never had that exciting, you know, church camp moment. We cried and fell down. Everything changed. We came home just screaming about it. People are like, well, yeah, of course you're a Christian. You grew up, yeah, you've been a Christian your whole life. And so he's challenging Timothy to just be unashamed he has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And then in chapter two, last week, we took a look at grace. He said, be strong in grace. And I, I would really encourage you, I don't say this because I, I taught it, but if you go back to any sermon from this series, I would, I would hope that it would actually be last week's because that's where we took a look at grace. Arguably the most important theological concept in the Christian life. 
in the Bible in some. Grace, grace powers everything. Getting what you don't deserve from God. Grace is the means by which God gets everything to you, though we don't deserve it. In tons of different layers, and I don't know, we maybe looked at 10 different layers of grace for the Christian. There's probably 400. I'm not that bright, I came up with 10. And there's all these layers where every step of the way, from predestination to glorification, from before time began, through time, when time no longer even exists, Grace, every step of the way. Grace, grace, grace. God giving you what you don't deserve, empowering you, giving you ministry, giving you gifts. And so being strong in grace was the sweep of last week. And so I want you to step back, take a look. We got four chapters. And in, in chapter one, he exhorts him to be, to be unashamed in the gospel. In chapter two, he says, it's going to be by grace that all things are accomplished in your life. And now in chapter three, and Paul is never afraid to do heavy chapters. He's never, I mean, he's in chains for crying out loud right now. He's looking out the window and they're prepping the stump for his head. And what happens, he says, look, when you're a regenerate, when you're a Christian, when your heart has been changed, we took a look at regenerating grace. When Jesus smacks you upside the head or he grips you before time even began and you're a Christian, he says you are going to notice a great and widening divide between the things of God and the things of the world. There is a great and widening divide. It's not static, it's widening. The things of God and the things of of the world. And as you get closer to Jesus, you're going to notice them more and more. Let me say that again. When you get closer to Jesus, you're going to notice the flagrant offenses of the things of this world more and more as you pursue Christ. It doesn't mean that we look at them condemningly. It's just the reality of it. And so Paul is going to write Timothy, he says, look, you're, uh, I pray that you're now unashamed of the gospel. You are bold, you are strong, you are in grace, you are saturated where God is giving you everything you need through grace. And when you're there, you're going to see this. But here's the thing, I don't want this to be a burden, I want this to be a relief. Because here's the thing, thousands and thousands of years ago, Jesus said this was going to happen. And we're shocked that it's happening. I was joking with Zach before this. I do not know why Christians get so bent out of shape when non-Christians don't act like Christians. <laughs> I don't get it. I can't believe they did that. I can. Have you met the world? What we should be more concerned about is when Christians don't act like Christians. Don't be bent out of shape that non-Christians are not acting like Christians. We should be concerned when Christians are not acting like Christians. And this isn't legalism. This isn't going to be a list of things you must do to be a Christian. This is actually going to be a list of things that you will notice as a Christian that the world holds to, that we're to be, in some sense, opposed to that we are to turn away from. These are the things on the other side of that widening gap. And so there's going to be this great divide. 
Our perspective has changed. This is occurring with the world and the things of God. First of all, don't freak out about it. Can I just encourage you in that? We spend so much time spinning our wheels, freaking out that the world is getting worse. As if that doesn't draw us one day closer to Jesus. Be calm. Be in a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And so as we see this divide, I want to essentially propose this list in two things. How to identify and how to respond to the things of the world. It's a very clear list. Paul is nothing if not clear. And so 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this. It says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And that word perilous is really kind of a, a navy term. It's a nautical term. It talks about just storming seas. Perilous times. Everything is chaotic. Everything is crashing. Everything, it seems, is out of order. Perilous times will come. And it says this, it says the last days. So let's stop on a thing called eschatology real quick. Eschatology is simply the study of the end times. I want to clarify a ton for you, I hope, tonight. People say, when are the last days? The New Testament talks about this a lot. And then we have the book of Revelation, yes? I've taught through the book of Revelation word for word, every single word of it. Crazy book, okay? It would make the most epic movie. No one could pull it off, though. Can't wait to watch it for real from Evan. Popcorn, the whole deal, okay? (laughs) There's the Revelation. That is tribulation, okay? Now, some people disagree. I do not believe that we're a part of the tribulation right now. We're going to know. Calvary Chapel preaches that, and we, we preach and we teach, that the church will be raptured before the tribulation, okay? Who's happy about that? I don't want to be here for that nonsense. Have you read that book? I want to be watching that from a nice cushy chair in heaven. Okay? So whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever, Calvary Chapel, okay? And by the way, whether you're pre, mid, post-trib, whatever, doesn't matter. We'll all be in Jesus. We'll figure it out then. We'll all be with Jesus. It doesn't define what a Christian is. It's not one of the essential doctrines. Okay? Agree to disagree on those issues. Okay? Lots of great teaching on all sides. But when the Bible talks about the last days, you need to know, I want to define for you right now what the last days are. Not talking about the tribulation. The last days. It is every day since Jesus left the earth. I want you to know that. Every day since Jesus left the earth has been a part of the last days. Who's played baseball or softball before? Right? Quick analogy. We've rounded first base, that was creation. We've rounded second base, that was the fall. We screwed it all up. We've rounded third base. That's the cross. The distance between third base and home is what we're living in right now. There's only one more chapter, and that's Jesus coming back. This is the final race. This is the home stretch. As it was for Paul, we had already rounded third base. Paul had rounded third base. Us today, living in 2015, we've rounded third base. We're between third base and home. Home base is Revelation. It's Jesus coming back. The last days are right now. Yes, just as they were for Paul in prison. These are the last days. So don't get bent out of shape. Start looking for signs. I think the UN is really the the consolidation of the powers and the mark of the beast and this sort of nonsense, right? Okay? 
People freak out about that. And I admit I've had a little fun with people when they get you know, gnarly about that. Start talking about the mark of the beast and the, the military and the government. And I said, is that why they put that thing in my wrist? People like, <laughs> freak out. I'm sorry. I, I got to stop doing that as a pastor now, right? People are freaking out. What are the last days? The last days are every day since Jesus left. Okay? This is just one long page turn in Jesus' story. Okay? These days is thousands of years. Like, it's taking him forever. It may feel like that in eternity. Like the cross and then revelation. It's probably, it's probably like that for Jesus. He probably just got up there and took a breath. I got to go back down. No, shoot. Feels long to us because we're in a finite time space continuum. But just know that the last days are today as they were for Paul in the prison. Does that clarify it? So when people ask, when were the last days? Are we in Revelation yet? Pastor Mark says, no, you can disagree with me. But are we in the last days? You betcha. We are in the home stretch. We've rounded third. That was the cross. Okay? We're starting the softball season, so that was the only illustration I could come up with. The last days, perilous times will come. Why are we freaking out that they're here? Christian, why are we freaking out that they're here? There's this widening divide. You just simply need to know that. You need to get over it so that you can get into ministry with people. Get over that. Here it comes. Here comes this crazy list. We need to know how to identify the things of the world and simply how to respond as Christians. But I'll tell you this, guard yourself real fast against putting people that you don't, people that you, that you know and non-Christians into one bucket and you in the other. This list should challenge you both personally as well as socially. Because we'll see at the end of this, we're going to be asked to turn away from these things, both in your social interaction and, and in your personal lives as well. So don't just put all the non-Christians in one bucket, though these are the things that the world in general will ascribe to. Don't be so smug as to say, well, I'm not a part of that. We are, and we have to root that stuff out, and that's why Paul writes it to Timothy. And that's why Jesus speaks through Scripture to us today, and it says, for men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of themselves. And it's not by accident that he starts with this. This is the catalyst for all the other things. This entire list is about putting you at the center of the universe. That's what it is. The word, the, the word in the original language literally means self-love. And it's not that you, you, you gaze at yourself and, and you think you're beautiful and you think that you're handsome. It's not that. It's that you think that everything revolves around you. And by the way, this is how it has always been. This is the default mode of the human heart. The default mode of the human heart is not, I want to serve others. I want to encourage them. I want to build them up. I want to sacrifice the things that I have for their betterment. That is not the default mode of the human heart. And I firmly believe that because we don't understand that, that is why we see such rampant divorce. That is why we see such rampant disobedience with parents and children. It's because we believe we are the center. And then when you are married and you're supposed to be one, their needs are supposed to be your needs and vice versa, self-sacrificing love. That's when it starts to fall apart because people say, I'm at the center. Everything revolves around me. And so lovers of themselves. This is the default mode. And the world reinforces it like crazy. Does it not? And by the way, this is not the fault of social media. Okay? I do social media marketing for a living. I'm on it more than you. Some of you have written me on Facebook and you cannot believe that I responded about eight seconds at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. 
It's because I have all tabs open. Ladies, I am a better pinner than you. Okay? I can Instagram like crazy. Okay? I haven't figured out Snapchat yet, but that thing freaks me out. Okay? This is not the result of social media. Social media just gave us one more window into what the human heart has always been producing. This is the selfie culture. You're like, wow, it's the, and, and, and older folks, you do this. We didn't have selfies. Yeah, you couldn't properly display or stream to someone's phone how self-centered you are. Congrats. We can, okay? Okay? Social media is not responsible for this. It is simply one more window that we get into what the human heart has always been doing, which is making it all about us. Just go through your Facebook list. Go through your posts. Me, 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 right? Look, I'm guilty of some of this too. I'm a business guy. I got to put myself out there as a fitness guy because I get clients that way and a business guy because I get clients that way, this sort of stuff. I get it, okay? But this is not the fault of social media. That's my point. This is simply the default mode of the human heart. and We're just getting a glimpse into it in a whole different and radical way. We're told that self-love is the foundation of healthy personality. How many have heard friends say, I can't love anyone right now. I need to learn to love myself. I'm not ready for a relationship. I'm, I'm working on me, right? You're definitely not ready for a relationship because you think you need to work on you. You need to get your stuff sorted out. And, and ironically, we're just tailspinning even further and further into self-centeredness. And then we want to add a boyfriend. We want to add a girlfriend to that mess. When you've taken some time away to make it even more about you. Good luck with marriage, okay? Come to me for your premarital. Beat that out of the guy, and my wife will gently get rid of it for the girl, too, okay? I can't love anyone until I learn to love myself. And look, we're not supposed to hate, each, we're not supposed to hate ourselves either. And as Pastor Rob has joked, and I'll, I'll repeat it here for the Sunday Night Crew, uh, you hear this, I, I, I hate me, I don't love me, I'm ugly, it's a cry for help. It's, it's not a genuine expression. Oh, I'm, I'm ugly. As Pastor Rob has joked, it's a little edgy. If you really hated yourself, you'd be happy you were ugly. Let that sink in for about a second. Realize how brutal it is. It's true though, right? I, I just, I don't, I just, stop. We, you want attention. I get it. Just say that. Be outright with it, ladies. Can we just say what we actually mean for once? Okay. <laughs> Only the married people get that joke. All right, so... I'm never coming back. <laughs> Man, tough crowd. Even wore my combat boots for crying out loud. How should we respond? Romans 12.3 says this. For I say, and I love this connector, through the grace given to me, grace given to me, To everyone who is among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think. It's not that you have to think of yourself as the bottom, just not higher than you think you are. Not higher than you actually are. It says he may more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Again, that's not demonstrably. You don't have to think bad of yourself. Just think soberly about yourself as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And so we need to see ourselves as we really are. Bad in the flesh and the glory of Christ. I have a, sh- I have a shirt that says sinner, saint. With a skull in the middle because I like skulls. 
Sinner in my flesh. Saint in Christ. But see how that elevates him and not you? In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. So Christians can't do anything good? They certainly can. And Christ will do it through them. The Holy Spirit will do it through them. It's not us. It's not the default mode of our human heart. It's the new heart and new desires of that regenerating grace we talked about last week. Sinner, saint. In your flesh, sinner. In Christ, you're seen as perfect. In Christ, you're seen as perfect. And so we see ourselves both in the bad of what we are in the flesh and the glory of who we are in Christ. And again, it's about who Jesus says you are. I, I didn't plan on this wasn't in my notes, but it just happened last night for the very first time. I got to say it because I'm a dad. I got a five-year-old. Last night was the first night had to have the talk because my five-year-old was told by another kid that he's a loser. Kids are sinners from day one, by the way. Okay. They don't learn how to do that. Okay. I, I, I never taught my boys how to lie. You don't teach your kid how to be mean. That's just in us from birth. But we came out and put Ethan in the car seat. He was totally downtrodden. I said, Mommy, so-and-so called me a loser. I was actually a little way. I heard it, and I swooped in dad mode. Right? Forget pastor mode. This is dad mode. Went and got eye level with him. I said, Ethan, you're not who anyone says you are. My wife's like, you're our son. She's in the back, like, you know, like, <laughs> getting a knife out. You know, like, <laughs> where is he? <laughs> See, and I want to say that to you tonight, not because you're children, but because you're Christians. You're not who anyone says you are. You are who Jesus says you are. Jesus says, in me, you are a saint. You are adopted, you are loved, you are wanted, you are cared for, you are precious. You are who Jesus says you are. In the flesh, a sinner to be sure. But in Christ and in his eyes, you are a saint. You are a child of God. And we're going to see self-love is really the foundation for all these other sins that he's about to list. Self-love, again, puts us at the center instead of Jesus. By the way, the Bible says that Jesus will share his glory with who? Who gets to share Jesus' glory? No one. Did he say Christians? No. No one will share God's glory. This is about him. But self-love that Paul is speaking to puts us at the center. The glory will be for us. And so this is, again, the catalyst and I've got this from commentator Barclay. says, the essence of Christianity is not the enthronement. The essence of Christianity is not the enthronement, but the obliteration of self. Dying to self that Christ may live in us. The essence of Christianity is not the enthronement, but the obliteration of self. And so as this divergence gets wider, we see that the world will continue to be and say to be lovers of yourselves. Instead, we put our faith, our hope, our joy in Jesus as the center, not ourselves. It says this, it says lovers of money, lovers of money. This puts money at the center of all things. 
and it distorts our view of people and relationships. We begin to use and abuse people relationships as a way by which we can accumulate more and more money. Again, this is a self-serving, self-love manifesting itself. And so the world will be lovers of money. But this does not mean, listen to me, you hear a lot about the prosperity gospel, don't you? Right? Who knows what the prosperity gospel is? You've heard it, right? I've been to a prosperity gospel church. I honestly went on accident. I didn't realize it. I was in Washington and I went and seemed just like a, a typical mega church. Like, okay, cool. Until they brought out television style, like no joke, like studio style cameras. They brought one out. And I was like, that's awesome. They have that camera. And they're like, this is what we have to put up with. The television camera? And then they pull out this even better one. It looked like a transformer. They pull it out. They're like, this is what we deserve. We only have one of these. They passed three offerings that service. Three offerings. I almost threw up. We didn't crack the Bible once. We weave together words from here to here that everything's about money. Okay? We've heard of the prosperity gospel. Churches that put the money at the center. But at the same time, you need to know about a lesser known gospel, which is the poverty gospel. The poverty gospel states that all money, money in itself is intrinsically evil. Making money is intrinsically evil. Making a profit is intrinsically evil. Therefore, all business is intrinsically evil. I got news for you. Jesus ran a business for 18 years. You better believe he made more than it cost him to perform his work so that he could buy food. Say that to every socialist wannabe, you can say, Jesus made a prophet. This is not the poverty gospel, which says you need to be poor and desolate and be a monk essentially somewhere. Look, it's outrageous to live out here. God's not calling all Christians to Tibet, to Arkansas. We're here, we've got to make some money. So this isn't the poverty gospel. And money is not the root of all evil. What is? It says this in Galatians Nope. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money. Has that not been distorted in culture? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil because it puts money at the center, not Jesus. And so as this chasm, as this, this divide widens, the world will fall more and more in love with money. It doesn't mean that the Christians can't make any money. Okay. But it means that we don't put it at the center and it's tough. Look, I'm a business guy. It comes down to the dollars or else we don't have jobs and you have to guard your heart. I'm making a living. I'm providing for my family. The Bible says any man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. You got to provide, gentlemen, you especially. Okay? But at the same time, we don't then make money the center, the source, sum, and center of our worship. And so the world, as this divide widens, the world will become even more and more intoxicated with the love of money. And so as Christians... We're called to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. First and foremost, make some money along the way so you can provide for your family. We all do it. 
We all do it. So this isn't the prosperity gospel. This isn't the poverty gospel either. But the world will be lovers of money. Christians are called to be lovers of Jesus and people who get a paycheck. Lovers of money. And then it says this. It says, boasters, proud, blasphemers. And to boast is to speak with exaggeration and excessive pride, especially about oneself. To speak with exaggeration and excessive pride. You embellish your achievements. You embellish your resume. You embellish your work history. You embellish your sports career. You embellish your work in school. You embellish your relationships. You are bigger and better than everyone can imagine boasters proud and again all three of these boasters proud blasphemers they say everything is about me and we see this more and more we see the glorification of those that ride this tidal wave politicians celebrities was the last time you saw a celebrity humbly admit they were wrong that was the dumbest tweet i ever sent i don't know what i was thinking what did they do what do they do? No, you don't understand it. I'm actually really epic, and the, I just use the wrong word, and they just they wiggle. No humility at all. Too boastful, too prideful. Politicians, athletes, for crying out loud. God's gift to the world, they think they are. And the world gives them millions to play a game. We encourage the living daylights out of it. It's not that it's much worse, though it is getting worse, but man, do we see it more. Through every media channel, through every social channel, we see not just the boasting, the pride, the blasphemy, but we see the glorification of it in all senses of the word. It says this in Galatians 6.3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Galatians 6.14 says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want something to boast about? Try that one. You haven't really worked out those talking points, have you? That one doesn't fly as easily. Like, bro, did you see me? I killed it at the game. Bro, did you see when they killed Jesus? It doesn't really, you know, vibe as well. It's a little tougher in the world, isn't it? Got to be a little more tactful. I am epic. Let me tell you about who's really epic. Okay? that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so while the world as this divide pushes wider and wider, the world will boast more, will be ever more prideful, will be ever more a blasphemer. Instead, as Christians, we're called every day with the sole purpose of lifting the name for the fame of Jesus Christ alone. Can you honestly say that your daily mentality is to, in some way, in thought, word, and deed, lift higher the name of Jesus? And again, I struggle with this. I've got to market myself. I've got to show that I'm a professional. I'm an expert in certain fields. I've got a track record. I grow businesses. I create business. It gets to be tough. But when you can get to that personal level with people and say, what really drives you? You want to know what really drives me? It's my faith. It's Jesus. I work hard. Why? Because Jesus worked hard. 
I, do all th- I try to do all things well, though I fail. I try to do all things well because in Mark 7, 37, it says Jesus did all things well. He's my example, not my dad, not my boss. Great men, great influences. Jesus is the propulsion behind my work. Jesus is the propulsion behind my homework. Jesus is the propulsion behind my family time. Jesus is the propulsion behind X, Y, and Z. That we every day lift the name for the fame of Jesus. That should be every day more and more of what consumes you as a Christian, as you're regenerated by grace and God gives you that new desire. So we're called every day to lift up the name of Jesus. It says disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. Maybe some of you are wincing inside. Check this, we'll start here. We'll go to Ephesians 6.1. It says, children, I want to show you something. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It doesn't just say, children, obey your parents. This is right. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is a challenge and a protection. In the Lord, for this is right. If your parent says to do something illegal, do you have to? No. But the Bible says to be obedient in the Lord. If they're outside the Lord, you, you, you need not be obedient to that command. You're in the Lord. If they're in the Lord, it's the same thing in marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. He's out of submission to Jesus. He broke rank, not you. You get that? Even the young, young crew, you got to know this now. It's, it's not to, you don't learn it five years into marriage. You got to learn it now. Wives, submit to your husband. The husband is in submission to the authorities above him. The children are in submission to the authorities above them. It's, it's, it's a protective layering system that God set up. If the husband breaks rank, says do this, which is outside the will of God, which is outside the protections of the Bible, of the faith, the wife need not respond. She need not be submissive in that. Same with the children. So if your parents are asking you to do something illegal, immoral, no. But in the Lord, if they are, yes. Yes, and some of you have been incredibly disobedient to your parents. And we need to know this too. There is a severing point. Okay, I'm married. I'm 34 now. Okay, my dad calls and says, hey, you're going to the wrong church. You need to go to the one down the street. No. No, there's that severing point, yes? Created our own family. Okay. Now I'm the protective layer for my family. I am now setting up those parameters, I'm setting up those protective layers. So there is a time, okay? If, you, if some of you are like, I need the hard line. Maybe it's when you get a mortgage, okay? Maybe it's when you stop living at your parents' house. Maybe that's when you can start to demand your freedom. When you start paying two grand a month for a house. It's about this big, okay? I have all the freedom in the world. Eh, under their roof, not so much, right? Move out, you can start, you can start crying about that a little bit more, Okay? But if you're still under that protective covering, if you haven't yourself become a protective covering for your own family unit, obedience to your parents. Now, why? Because Mark says so? Because Paul said so? No, because here's how it has gospel ramifications. Did God the Father die for you on the cross? Did he? Did the Holy Spirit die for you on the cross? No, some of you are crazy. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) No, he didn't. Jesus died for you on the cross, yes? One God, three persons. 
Jesus came to the earth and he said, I am not here to do my will, but the will of who? The Father. In the garden before the cross, he said what? Praying, Father, take this cup from me, the cup of God's wrath. He says, look, if there's any other way to do this, let's do that. That's what Jesus says. But then he says these words, not my will, thy will. Jesus himself in the Trinity showed functional submission, completely equal with God the Father, completely equal with God the Holy Spirit, yet with separate roles. Family reflects the gospel to people. Family reflects the Trinity to people. Functional submission, equal before God, but functionally submissive with separate roles. When you obey your parents, when they are in the Lord and you are in the Lord, when you obey your parents, you are showing them, you are showing the world across that divide how God operates. Think about that. That is how obeying your parents becomes gospel work. Functionally submitted. The Holy Spirit came to do what? Glorify Jesus. Jesus came to do what? Glorify the Father. It works right back up the chain. Functionally submissive. Children obey their parents. Parents are under the authority of church pastors and elders. We're all under the authority of law enforcement, nations, government, ultimately God. Those layers of protection play themselves out. I'd encourage you, I'd challenge you to take a look at the areas where you're being disobedient to your parents, especially you young folk, especially you younger folk. Be obedient because the world will be disobedient. We're called as children to obey parents as a reflection of Jesus' obedience to the Father. It says this, we'll knock off a couple. It says, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. The world will continue to be more unthankful, will continue to be more unholy. And holy means what? Set apart, not separated, but set apart. The world will continue to be less and less set apart. They will continue to meld into one big boiling pot. Unloving, unforgiving. And forgiveness is simply this. Some of you say, if I forgive someone, does it mean I have to forget it happened? No. Does it mean that I have to negate justice? No. If a crime's been done, you can forgive someone and send them to jail. Does it mean that I have to, I have to act like it doesn't hurt anymore? No. Forgiveness is simply this, and I've talked on it in depth in the past. The the simplest way I can describe forgiveness to you is this. Not viewing someone through the lens of their sin. Because that's what God is doing with us. If God sees you through the lens of your sin, we're screwed. Right? Just one will separate you from God. We've done more than that since we got here tonight. One, separate from all eternity. God has removed that lens of sin and now he sees us as perfect in Christ. Okay? When you forgive someone, you say, I no longer see you through the lens of your sin. Now this can be tough. It doesn't mean you go crazy. Look, I've said this before and I'll say it again. My grandpa molested my mom. They did not tell me until after he was dead because they knew I would kill him. They knew. Regenerate or not, I was an angry teenager. I was angry in high school. I would have waited. It wouldn't have been the first day we got to their house. It wouldn't have been the second day we got to their house. It would have been when they least expected it. And I would have pounced. If I didn't kill him, he'd be in the hospital for a couple days. So unforgiving. 
And he passed and they told me and I still struggled with it. Still struggle with it. And then my mom said this. I said, mom, how could you, how could you even deal with that? I forgave him. How, how on earth could you forgive that? And we started to talk about it. And at one point she said something so profound to me. She said, I forgave him, but I never let him alone with your sisters. I thought, if I just forgave you, I have to trust you again. You're crazy. No way. She just no longer saw him through the lens of his sin. She still took protective measures. But that is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is no longer seeing someone through the lens of their sin. Because that's what God is doing for you. When you no longer see your friend who sinned against you recently, through the lens of their sin, your family member who recently sinned against you, and you're angry, you won't talk to him anymore, you want anything to do with him anymore, you're going you're gonna to make sure that they know, whether aggressively or passive-aggressively, you're going to let them know. You remember, and you're not a fan of them anymore. You are not reflecting a God that says, look, you've done far worse to me, and I don't see you like that anymore. Doesn't mean you don't take protective measures. Doesn't mean you don't guard yourself against future crime, future hurt, future abuse but you no longer primarily see them through the lens of their sin. That's what forgiveness is. The world will continue to do that. For the Christian, that's not a part of who we are and who we're called to be. The world will be unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. It says this in terms of being unthankful in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will. How many of you are like, I want to know what God's will is for my life? I'm waiting for him, and then you just don't read your Bible apparently because he says it in tons of different places. This is one of them. I have no idea what God's will is for my life. I'm going to settle that tonight, at least with one point. It's to be thankful in everything. Now, notice what this Bible verse does not say. Some of you are struggling with that. You're like, but he doesn't know what I'm going through. How on earth? It doesn't say, be thankful for everything. In everything, good or bad. In everything, not for everything. You get that? I pray that relieves you because you've heard this and, and in our minds we say, says, I've just got, I gotta be thankful for everything. This is nonsense. I'm not thankful for sex trafficking. I'm not thankful for the abuse that took place in my past. I'm not thankful for the way they treated me. It was ungodly, it was unjust. Not for it, but in everything. In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I dare you to try that this week. I seriously dare you to be in such constant communication, praying unceasingly, as the Bible calls us to do, to be thankful in everything. The world will be unthankful and unholy and loving and unforgiving. And so the Christian, by default, will become more thankful, more holy, which is set apart, not separated, but set apart within, more loving and more forgiving. It says that they will be slanderers, And this is simply making a statement damaging, a false statement damaging to someone's reputation. See, here's the thing. A a lot of times, so we've blown by boastfully, like I don't have much to boast on. So how do you elevate yourself when you don't have much to talk about? It's two ways to rise. It's to elevate yourself or it's to crush others. And some of you gossip and slander because you honestly don't have much to build yourself up around. You don't have much to build yourself up with. So instead, you'll just push other people down. This is all about you. That's what loving yourself is about. You are the center, not Jesus. This is about your height, and so you crush other people down. That's what slander is. 
It says this in Ephesians 4.15. Just the first part. It says, rather speak the truth in love. Truth in love. Look, we're still called to proclaim the truth, but it must be done lovingly. Okay, and, and, the, and the big divide between legalists and liberals in terms of theology, I don't care about your politics. Legalists love to declare truth, and a lot of times they're right, and they got no love. And liberals love to just love on everyone, but at the expense of truth. And so the Christian, the regenerate Christian, as the world divides and it continues to slander and get meaner and nastier, Christians constantly find new ways through study of the scripture to convey truth in love, and Jesus perfected it. He went right to the heart. He had some very choice words for some people. But he did it in love. And God is love. So everything Jesus did was ultimately a loving act. Study his life. Study the gospels. Study the red text. Jesus perfected this. And so instead of slanderers, we're called to seek and to build up those around us. Why? Because Jesus sought us out and built us up. It's about him. It's about reflecting what he's done for you to a world that needs to know him. And it says this, it says, there'll be slanderers, they'll be without self-control. The world teaches what? Indulgence, immediate gratification. That's why some people, myself included, had sex before marriage. Because we wanted immediate gratification. The world does not teach delayed gratification. You don't see it in any vestige of media. You don't see it in any classroom in college campuses. You don't see it anywhere in the world. Delayed gratification. The world teaches instant gratification. Now. Sex, drugs, alcohol, food, shopping. Now. The now generation. Immediately. Indulgence, go for it, go big, now, don't wait. Buy it now, figure out how to pay it later. Hebrews 12, 11 says this. For the moment, all discipline, discipline, discipline. I teach this in fitness and, and, and nutrition. I'm a, I'm a fitness instructor and a nutrition coach at CLU at the university. I teach this. We do not have a nutrition problem in America. We do not even have a fitness problem in America. We have a discipline problem. I can give you all the resources right there on paper. Eat this for the rest of your life. People are like, eh. We have more access to more knowledge than anyone on the face of the planet. We're like, eh, we lead the world in obesity. We do not have a nutrition problem. At the core of it, we have a discipline problem. Sin is the symptoms. A lack of righteousness is the symptoms. At the core of it is a discipline problem. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's big. Delayed gratification, delayed glorification. Not instant, but eternal. Jesus knew that. Cross didn't feel good, but he knew what it led to. He knew what it led to. And so as the world divides and goes less and less with self-control, we're called to die to ourselves, as Jesus died to himself, not for immediate gratification, but for eternal glorification. It says the world will be this. It'll be brutal. The world will be brutal. 
I'm in the me- I-, I love metal music, Christian metal, okay? Just bands that freak your parents out, right? <laughs> love it. it. Sounds like crazy. And these are poor, these Christians come, they have people come up to me like, I see the devil when you play. Like I was screaming about Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> the whole deal is. Maddie Montgomery from Fourth Today said he's over there signing autographs. A lady comes up and says, I see the devil in your eyes when you scream. He's like, I'm up there screaming about the king is alive. You missed it, right? But this is a huge word, brutal. Everything in the metal scene has got to be brutal, right? It's got to be brutal. It says the world will be brutal. We'll be cruel in our thoughts. We'll be cruel in our word. We'll be cruel indeed. And I would say that it's not necessarily that we're more brutal than the generations past, right? We're not more brutal necessarily, though some could argue, I would just say that we are seeing the rise of the glorification of brutality in entertainment, right? Look, it was America that begged to see what went on in war. It really was. It was Vietnam. They said, send cameras. We want to see. And then they saw it and they're like, we don't want to deal with that. We demand it. We want to see it. We don't have anything to do with it sometimes. We demand to see it. It's not that we're necessarily more brutal. Most people would say we're more civilized, even though there's actually more slavery today than there was when Abraham Lincoln was president. There's more slavery today. We don't, we don't, no one teaches that. No one talks about that. It's true though. Sheer numbers, sheer volume. There's more slavery today. So in some sense, we are becoming more brutal, but we're also seeing the rise of the glorification of the brutality as the world divides. And Titus 3.2 says this, in regards to being cruel thoughts and words and deeds. So speak evil of no one. Now who's included in no one? Everyone. No one. I don't care if they're the opposite political party of you. I don't care if they dated your girlfriend. I don't care, not at the same time, right? I don't care what they've done. Speak evil of no one, except the people I don't like, right? No one. When God speaks, life occurs. It's Genesis 1, the first sermon. All things came into existence because God spoke it. Christian words should bring life to this world. Speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Some of us are not gentle. I work on that every day. I have to. My boys have really helped me out. I was not a gentle person for a long time. It says, be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. All people. So as the world becomes more brutal, we're called to show grace and mercy that Jesus has extended us. It says, despisers of good. Okay, it's, it's, look, it's not even that good is normal. It's, it's virtually never been. We've got a false misconception that at one point, especially in America, we were really good when we started and now we're really bad. It's nonsense. It's not even that good isn't the standard. It's not even that ambivalence isn't the standard. It's now the assault on the things that are good. That's the standard. It used to be you could say, I, am, I, I will defend to my dying breath a pregnant woman because that's not just one life, that's two. That was a good thing. Now it's an assault on those that would say, hey, should we not kill children in the womb? Some of you struggle with that with abortion. Some of you may, maybe need to have some regenerate heart on that issue. Babies are always spoken of in personal pronouns in the Bible. You need to know that. There was a time where it was probably considered good by the, by, the, by the moral compass, if you will, to defend traditional marriage. Look, marriage is a man and a woman. Now it's not even like people are like, just think whatever you want. Now it's the assault on those that would proclaim as much. I would say God made a male and female. 
He, made, he united them. He made them one. So it's, it's not just that they're ambivalent to those who see good. It's that they despise. Don't be shocked when the world despises good. Doesn't mean we're complacent. Doesn't mean we stop voting and just wait for the whole world to go to hell in a handbasket. Do your due diligence, but don't be shocked when non-Christians don't act like Christians. Be more shocked when Christians proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming life, a creator God who knitted babies together in their mother's womb. Be concerned when Christians start voting as non-Christians. Start acting like non-Christians. Despisers of good. Romans 12, 21. Check this one out. Super simple. It's Paul again. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I dare you. When you're offended, I dare you to go out and do something good. I dare you to press back into the culture that we are despising now. When you see those atrocities, do something good. And by the way, Facebook status doesn't count. I just wanted you to know that hacktivism. Okay, I'm a hacktivist. No, you're lazy and you live in your mom's basement, right? I'm sorry, we don't have basements out here. That doesn't go over too well. People are like, what's a basement? Okay, it's it's a whole floor underground. It's crazy, okay? I'm from the Midwest. We had tornadoes. We hung out down there and played pool while the thing went over our house. Don't be overcome evil with good. Press back in. Okay? When you see the despising of good, don't just don't just throw up your hands, send out a signal flare, update Facebook, freak out and go to bed. <laughs> right? Press into something. Go into ministry. Engage. Push. We're to be salt. Look, the world is decaying. Salt doesn't reverse decaying and steak, by the way, it just stalls it. People say, oh, we're to be salt. It means we're going to push everything back and the world's going to get good again. Anyone seen a decaying steak go back to being perfect because you threw some salt in it? No, it's a preservative. It means you just slow the decay. It doesn't mean you reverse it. Slow the decay, Christian. The world is decaying. It's our job to simply slow it, not reverse it. It's not going to happen. The world's getting worse. It says this. We'll knock off a couple. It says, so there'll be despisers of good. Sorry, so instead we're called to be salt and light in an increasingly decaying and darkening world. And by the way, as the world gets darker, guess what happens? Smaller candles look even brighter. The darker it gets, smaller candles. You, you think like a couple acts of good, a couple service, a little ministry, a little work here, a conversation with a friend. It can't really do much in the world, but as it gets darker, I'm telling you, those conversations become even more potent. Okay? So we're called to be salt and light in an increasingly decaying and darkening world. It says this, it says there'll be traitors, headstrong. Traitors is still uh, one of the things that um, the U.S. even considers to be the highest, it's, it's treason. It's the highest crime is to be a traitor. The highest crime. The world will continue to be more like traitors who just serve themselves, who will switch sides depending on what serves them the, the fastest, the easiest, the quickest. They'll be traitors. They'll be headstrong. Now, my little boy, Ethan, that's what his name is. Part of his name is headstrong. That's what Ethan means. If you met him, you know, okay? Actually, Asher is more, Asher's a little crazy right now, but we'll see. But headstrong, it doesn't mean that you're not firm, resolved, okay? It just means that you always have to have your way. And I've lived in that world, and it's miserable. It's miserable. They'll be traitors, the world will be more unloyal. They'll, tra- they'll betray to seek personal gain. They'll be headstrong, which means that they'll continue to have to have their own way despite anyone else, despite what the Bible says, despite what the church says. Haughty, 
You need to be arrogant, have feelings of superiority. Christians, we got to be concerned with that. You got to watch for that. You got to guard your heart against that. This message should not cause you to fall into this bucket, which is haughty. Well, there's the world over there. He kept doing this. I'm over here, I'm over there. It says they'll be lovers of pleasure. They'll seek out only that which satisfies them. They'll care nothing for others. Check this out. I, I'm an ad guy. I, I, I did advertising as a, as a major. Anyone majoring in communications, like ad PR, anything like that? Com major, right? Um, what? We get something. Oh, no, no, okay, so I'm an, ad, I'm an ad nerd. So check out some of these slogans from the late 90s. National ad campaigns. Nothing is taboo. Nothing. National, bam, overall. Christians don't get this sort of media coverage all over the whole nation. Nothing is taboo. National ad campaign. Break all the rules. Break all the rules. To know no boundaries. None. There's no boundaries. There's no, no protective fences around. To know no boundaries. Relax. There's no rules here. Oh, now we can be relaxed. There's no rules here. Right? It'd be like my little boys be, oh, mom and dad said it's fine if we run into traffic. Oh, I can finally relax. Relax, no rules here. Peel off inhibitions, find your own road. All roads lead to, all roads lead to, to God. It's true, but not all of them lead to heaven. Everyone will stand before God. Live without boundaries. Just do it. Ever heard of that? And so the world's message is always the same. You make your own rules. You make your own rules. You're at the center of your universe. You answer to no one. You are the one that matters. The universe revolves around you. And so as the world goes traitor and headstrong and haughty and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, we're called to be loyal in the faith, humbly seeking after Jesus and his will, loving God and people along the way. We're called to be loyal in faith, Humbly seeking after Jesus and his will, loving God and people the whole way. And it says this about all these people. This is tough. Verse five, it says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power and from such people, turn away. Turn away. And you know me, I'm gonna preach the text and I'm gonna drive it hard. So when we come across passages that talk about engaging with the unlovable and, and pressing into the dark places, as Jesus pressed in the dark places, I'm going to preach those hard. But tonight, there's some, probably some people in your life that you need to begin to turn away from. Perhaps even from, from, a, from a good place, you say, I just got to keep loving on them. But look, they're killing you. And they know what they're doing. And they're trying to slow you down. And they're trying to get you to question everything. And they're trying to get you to put you at the center of your own universe. And from such people, you may need to turn away. And that's the social implication, but the personal implication is this. Look, we're all guilty of this list on some form or another. We're all guilty. And turn away is quite literally what it means to repent. Not only do you need to look at those that are in your social circles and say, look, um, look you come to me with quite, I'm going to continue to minister to you when I can. And I'm, I'm going to try to work it out. And there's going to be times where we can connect and I'm going to love on you. I'm going to show you Jesus. But, but, but honestly, I'm spending just too much time. You're only in it for yourself and that's all you want to talk about and that's all you want me to think about. 
I need to turn away. But in your own life from this whole list too, we need to turn away from these things, Christian. These are, these are not the things that sets the church apart. These are not the things, when Jesus came into the muck of the world, he was very clearly set apart. He wasn't separated from us. He was the opposite. He came into our mess, but he was set apart within it. And so I, I would challenge you to guard your heart against those that are in your life. And it's a tough text. If you want me to preach it, we got to find a different, if you don't want me to preach it, we got to find a different Bible. It says, turn away from these people. And I don't know who they are in your life. You've simply got to press into the Holy Spirit and say, show me the people that are ultimately attempting to lead me to destruction. And I may need to turn away from them for a season. I pray they come back. They got questions about my, but look, there's some people in your life. Maybe it's time to turn away. Okay. And it says this, it says for those for of this sort, verse six, are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always leaning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Go down to verse 10. It says, but you. He's going to say this twice. But you, Christian, look up. We've talked a lot about this. We've talked a lot about that. And Paul says, but you. But you. Something different, but. It's a disassociated conjunctive. All that, but you. All these things. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parent, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. It says, but you. But you. Have carefully followed my doctrine. And some of you don't like the word doctrine. You need to know it's just a derivative from a French word that means doctor. True doctrine heals. It's not used to beat people it heals. Doctor, doctrine. I was a Marine. I can't even figure that one out, right? Not too far. Okay. Doctrine is meant to heal. You follow sound doctrine, God will continue through his grace to heal you. It says, I followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long suffering, my love, perseverance. These are the things that mark the Christian, but you Christian will be marked by sound doctrine, a manner in life that has purpose and faith, it's long-suffering, it loves and it perseveres. There's persecutions, afflictions. By the way, that's not, a, that's not a hypothetical, it's a reality. Whether we're persecuted overtly, as you see with other Christians in other countries, or covertly, where you're snicker at, snickered at, maybe you don't get a job, you don't know, there's covert persecution, overt persecution. But look, the Bible declares very clearly, if you are a Christian, you will be persecuted. Don't be shocked. Give thanks in all things. Do not be shocked when you are persecuted, Christian. When they laugh at you, Christian. When they mock you, when they call you a loser. Don't be surprised when non-Christians don't act like Christians. This is which happened to me at Antioch. Verse 12, go down and says, yes. And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. It is getting worse. In that regard, it is getting worse. Uh, look, there's a, sl- before I came up on this next passage, as you can see, because I just keep going, I, had, I, I could have thrown up any host of videos. 
imposters, fakes, false prophets, false messiahs, leading people astray, people that Jesus would call a hypocrite, hypocrite, those that should know the truth and they lead people away from it. He says, look, it will get worse and worse. Don't be shocked. There's people out there proclaiming to be the second coming of Christ. There was one guy in Florida somewhat recently, second coming of Christ. He gets people to follow him. It's saddening, but it was predicted. It says it will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned. Now he's speaking to Timothy too. So remember Timothy had this faith from early on and have been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now he's gonna go into a little bit of Bible and he says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And now look, verses 16 and 17 deserve a whole series in themselves. A whole series Verse 16 says this, all scripture, everyone say all. All All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Everyone say inspiration of God. God. Who wrote the Bible? God. God, man just penned it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Again, think of that as healing teaching that heals for reproof, for correction, for an instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You need to know that this is the foundation for a doctrine known as sola scriptura. In the Protestant Reformation, they essentially set up five major pillars of Protestant theology and contradistinction to the Catholic church. If you're from a Catholic background, don't worry about it. We're not here to bag on it. But they set up five theological pillars, one of which is sola scriptura, and that was the first one because guys like Martin and Luther, those guys knew. Martin and Luther. Luther and Calvin. He was two guys? (laughs) He was bipolar. No, I'm just kidding. Bad bipolar joke. And so um, sola scriptura was the first one. It says this, sola scriptura in its essence says that the Bible is our highest authority. Highest authority. It is not solo scriptura, which is the Bible is our only authority. It's not true. It's not. Okay? The Bible doesn't explain how to swing and hit a pitch. So, I, I can't play baseball. It doesn't tell me how in the Bible. There are lesser authorities that can help you on that. The Bible doesn't speak to certain areas. It has everything you need to know for salvation. But it doesn't describe how to perform open heart surgery. So there are medical authorities that will teach you how to do that. So generally you hear, you go to one of those churches, the Bible's your only thing. No, the proper understanding is sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our highest authority. If it speaks to it, it is the highest authority. If it doesn't, there are lesser authorities that can speak to it. But there's two ways. And apart from the divinity of Jesus, this is arguably the most divisive theology, to be honest. Even within Christian churches, with the whole postmodern movement, you see these Christian pastors coming up and they got slick websites and they've got tons of YouTube clips. They've got sexy haircuts. They wear vests and just weird clothes. You think I dress weird, right? You should see these guys. They're on trend. They are on point. 
and they're wiggling their way around the authority. And I had a perfect video of a guy, but I, I would honestly just start mocking him up here. And so I don't want to do that. And, and they start to wiggle around that the Bible is the highest authority. And they just want to, it's more about experience. It's about God just wants you to love everyone. What's love? No, don't worry about that. You know, is there, and we just kind of do this. But look, apart from the divinity of Jesus, this is arguably the most divisive thing. Here's how I'm going to do it. I've done this. Zach has done this. I'm going to do this again. There's two ways to view the Bible. One way is like this. That's above you. Not in a demeaning way, not, not in, in a violent way, but a protective layer. The Bible is above you. If it speaks to it, you submit to yourself on it. You submit to God's word. God breathed, authored by God himself. This is one way to view the Bible. The other way is this. Some of you freak out right now. Some of you freak out right now. It's paper. God's not contained in this book, but everything you need to know about him is. And what this is, is this is you saying, look, I've got the Bible, it's in my life, but I will dictate what it means and what it says. I'm not under pastoral authority. I'm not under the elders. I'm not under my parents. God hasn't set up this. So it's just me and Jesus. You heard that? Then you're free to say whatever you want. You don't have to bounce it off other people, people that have been spending their lives in ministry. This is how you view the Bible. Or is it here for you? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Do you know that it protects you, that it loves you, that it heals you when properly exegeted? And again, this is a massive, massive picture that he paints in the last two verses. But again, keep in mind the sweep. He says, be unashamed of the gospel. Be strong in grace. Don't be surprised the world is going to divide. This is the things that the world will love, and those are not things that are of God. How on earth will we know those things if he doesn't himself tell us? Imagine a God that just creates life and says, figure it out. Just figure it out. I'm not going to tell you what's wrong. I'm not going to tell you what's right. I'm not going to tell you anything about Jesus. Just figure, I hope it works out for you. That's a cruel God. This is not a cruel God of the Bible. It's a cruel God that wouldn't give you the Bible. Say, figure it out on your own, because you know where that's going. To you is the center of the universe, not Jesus. And so he says, look, don't be surprised, Christian. The world will begin to look very different. But keep in mind, we are called to the holy calling, not of our own strength, not of our own might, to be unashamed of the gospel and to have something that no fake religion on the planet has even made up. Grace, that a God would give you everything though you don't deserve it and there is nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. He says the world will divide and Jesus says, look, you've rounded third base. We're on the home stretch now. The world is doing this. Remain loyal. Stay in the faith. Stay encouraged. Stay excited. Stay under good Bible teaching. The world's going to do this. Don't freak out. Minister to them. Jesus from heaven says, look, stay loyal. Be strong in grace because I'm coming soon. These are the last days. Perilous times though they may be, these are the last days, which guess what? Get excited means Jesus is coming back soon. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for a tough chapter. Thank you for a tough list. Again, I pray against haughtiness in the Christian heart. 
I pray against this idea that we're superior, but that we would just simply properly understand that you've given us all that we have, though we don't deserve it. And so we're to press back into the world and give people that which they don't deserve, grace, not give them what they do deserve, mercy, not because it suits our benefit, but because it shows them you. And so Jesus, we pray for restoration in our community. We pray for restoration in our state and our nation, but we're no longer surprised at the things of the world don't look anything like the things of you. And I pray that we know how to identify those. And when we see them, we simply know now how to respond as Christians by your grace, not of our own might, not so that people will see us, but that they will see you. Jesus, be high and lifted up. Be the center of all things. The Bible tells us, and we know it to be true, that you are. Holy Spirit, make Jesus the center of our heart. On mission, excited, for who you are and what you've done. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.